Thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Cast, the official podcast of Coryton Church. What does Revelation chapter 6 tell us will take place at the end of days? Let's take a look. This is the second and final part of Dr. Rocky Ramsey's message about the sealed judgments we find in chapter 6 of Revelation. We pick up with Pastor Rocky explaining the fifth seal as we observe martyrs waiting for justice in verses 9 to 11. In Revelation 6, 11, those killed for their walk with Jesus are given white robes. Now put two verses in your outline. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. So in, in, our, in our case, when we lose somebody, it's the saddest time for us. In God's case, it's the happiest time for him. You know why? Because now this person has come home. This person is no longer uh, controlled and damaged by sin. This person is now out of the curse. This person will never weep again, never know sorrow, sickness, pain, suffering, death. So on our side, it's, it's, it's loss. On, on, on God's side, it's all gain. So it's precious when we get home. In Acts 7.55, Stephen, you remember Stephen was uh, telling people about Jesus and they were going to stone him. And when they were about to stone him, he looked up and saw into heaven. In 7.55 of Acts, he says, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, most of the time when you read about Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of God. It says that three times in the New Testament. But here he's standing. It's like he's giving a standing ovation to uh, Stephen, who was the church's first martyr. So we see, see the, these martyrs. And then the sixth seal is broken, and catastrophic disasters occur. Catastrophic disasters in Revelation 6, 12 to 17, these, these catastrophic disasters are, 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 uh, are labeled and named. There's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes red. Stars, likely asteroids, fall to the earth. The sky is split apart, which is what happens when that's what thunder is. You do it all that, don't you? When lightning happens, lightning splits the atmosphere and splits it apart, and when it comes back together, that's what thunder is. That's where you hear the thunder. So the sky's gonna be split apart like a scroll. Every mountain and island gets moved by this earthquake. Now think about that. Think about how cataclysmic that would be. Rich men and poor men all try to hide from God and his wrath. Now, Matthew 24, kind of summing up, Jesus says uh, there in verses 10 to 14, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, the prophets Joel and Isaiah also mentioned the things mentioned here in Revelation 6. So I'll just read these to you, but I've li I put them there in your outline. You can look them up later. In Joel 2, 30 to 31, it says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel 3.15 The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Isaiah 13, 9-10 Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 34, 2-4 for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them and he has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give, up their, give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And all the hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine as one withers from the fig tree. In Revelation, there are three great earthquakes. This is the first one, here in chapter 6, verse 12. In 11, verse 13, there's another. And then chapter 16, 18 to 19, there's another. Now, just let us think a little bit. If you're 40 years of age or older, you will never forget 9-11. You remember exactly where you were when you first saw the video of those planes flying into the Twin Towers and those towers crashing to the ground. You will never forget the scene where the third plane had crashed into the Pentagon and put that big hole in the side of it. And you'll never forget the phrase, let's roll, used by a true hero who helped take down that fourth plane that supposedly was headed for the White House. In other words, that in our lifetime, that probably is the most shocking thing that any of us have ever experienced. And uh, we, were, we were numb, we were, we were in unbelief. Now just think about that was one incident, one day, and then think about all this that's going on in the tribulation. It's not all happening in two cities. It's happening everywhere. So for example, in those days, we all watched in utter shock and disbelief. We we're emotionally numb. Our sense of safety was forever rocked. Now, with that in mind, imagine living through these judgments in the tribulation. Let me give you some history to give you some perspective. Pestilence or disease. Supposedly, 2.6 million people have died worldwide from COVID since last year. In the 1300s, the bubonic plague killed more than 25 million people in Europe alone. Between 1981 and 2006, 25 million people died from AIDS. Now those are, seem catastrophic to us, but remember, when this one uh, seal gets broken, almost 2 billion people die in a short season. Think about natural disasters. In 1201, an earthquake killed 1.1 million people in Egypt and Syria. In 1970, 300,000 died from a cyclone-induced flooding in Bangladesh. China has a history of catastrophic flooding. I won't comment on why, okay? I'll just leave that alone. 
1887, 900,000 people died from a flood. In 1931, more than 3 million people died from a flood and the starvation it created, uh, it caused by that flood. In 1938-39, 1 million Chinese people died in another flood. In 1959, 2 million died in a flood in China. Today's passage talks about stars falling to earth, likely asteroids. In 1908, one asteroid destroyed, destroyed more than 700,000 acres in Siberia. Think about that. 700,000 acres, one asteroid came down and did that. So how many will there be in those days? We don't know. That may explain how, how so many people are dying. Volcanic eruptions have also brought incredible destruction. A volcanic eruption took place on August 27, 1883 on an island in the Dutch East Indies called Krakatau or Krakatoa. It has, if you look it up, it has both names that are, that are given to it. The explosion from this volcanic eruption was heard in Rodriguez, South America, 3,000 miles away. Think about that. 3,000 miles away, they heard this thing blow. After the eruption, it said that the sun was blotted from view at a place called Batavia, maybe saying it wrong, which is 100 miles away. Couldn't even see the sun, 100 miles away. On another island, 150 miles away, the sun was blotted out and the moon appeared red. Tidal waves traveled from this one volcanic eruption as far as Cape Horn, an island off of Chile, 7,000 miles away. I just think about that. That's one volcano erupting. You know, because it was in sparsely populated places, only about 36,000 people died. But just think about all these things, and I mean, this is going to get far, far worse as we go on through the tribulation. But just think about all this death, a quarter of the population of the world dying. And you outline three things that we know about this devastation. Number one, no one is exempt from the disasters. No one is exempt from the disasters. It, in Revelation 6, 15, it says, Great men, commanders, rich, strong, free men, slaves, they all try to hide from these disasters taking place. But there's nowhere to hide. Number two, people want to die. In verse 16, Gnosis says that they want the rocks to fall on them. They want the rocks to fall on them. So it appears that they're trying to die. They want to die, but they can't die. Number three, everyone knows that this judgment has come. Everyone knows that judgment's come. Verses 16, 17 tell us that they knew that these judgments were the wrath of God and of his Lamb. So the six seals. Now, number seven in your outline is the seventh seal. And again, it begins the trumpet judgments, which we'll read about in, Matthew, in Revelation 8, 1 to 7. It's a whole new series of judgments similar to these, but worse than these. Again, in two weeks, we'll be, we'll be there. Now, let me, let me close with some closing observations. Well, I'm short tonight, aren't I? Here's number one. Number one, God is in control even when you think he isn't. The song we just sang, you are God alone. 
You're unshakable. All those things about God. God is in control when you think that he is. Remember when we saw the throne of God, there was a sea of glass in front of him. So down on earth, kind of all hell is breaking loose, but up in heaven, there is just perfect peace. God is unmoved by the sin and the destruction of men. You know, we might get all to- out of shape over uh, elections or pandemics or all kinds of things, but God in heaven is at perfect peace. The things that bother you don't bother him. The things that ruin your day never ruin his. God is above it all. He is transcendent. If you were alive when these catastrophic things were taking place, you'd think God must have lost control. His creation's being destroyed, and uh, the people that God created, and if you know the Bible, God loves and Christ died for, are being destroyed. God has not lost control. In that time, and in your time, whatever your time is, God is in control, even when you think he isn't. Number two, though God's patience is seemingly eternal, his justice is infinitely sure. Though God's patience is seemingly eternal, his justice is infinitely sure. In Revelation 6, 11 to 12, those martyred for their faith ask God, when will he avenge their deaths? They obviously think and wish that he would do something sooner than he is. And don't we more often than not want God to do something a lot quicker than he does? So I've got a lot of fundamental problems with God. One is, is I'm in a hurry always, and he never is. God doesn't care about time. We're going to read a verse in a moment about, you know, a day's like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. It could say a day's like a billion years. Time has no meaning to God. It means everything to us because we live in it. He doesn't live in it. He created it. And so it has no meaning to him. And God does things with timing. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son into the world. And here he tells these martyrs, there'll be a day when the last martyr will die, and then I'll move. Of course, he knows when that day is. God doesn't concern himself with time. In verse 12, they're told that other martyrs will join them. Now, don't you take your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. And as we read those, understand that in the first century, when, the, when the, all these uh, New Testament books are being penned, they thought Jesus was coming back then. They were, they were expecting him to come back and take them uh, out of this world, just like we are now, 2,000 years later. So you know, the Bible is so incredible. You just think about the things said in uh, uh, Joel and Isaiah that are said again in Revelation. You know, these guys lived hundreds of years apart. They didn't have computer programming and word processing and some other way to check their facts with each other. Make sure they're all saying the same thing. So how did they say the same thing? Well, because the same person was writing all those books. And that was God. They were just pinning them. And so God foresees what's going on. You know, uh, we'll talk about how to be a Christian. Uh, in fact, the next three out of the next four Sundays is going to be how to, how to be a Christian, how to become a Christian, how to, how to know you're a Christian. 
But anyway, uh, as we talk, uh, uh, as we get into to those things, you know, God uh, tells us things in Scripture. He answers questions nobody's asking. Like in the Old Testament, for example, the Bible says that, the, that God hangs the world on nothing. And he tells us it's a sphere. Well, everybody thought the world was flat. And everybody had all kinds of opinions about what he was sitting on. And then, you know, thousands of years, you know, actually a couple thousand years or more after those things are written, man discovers the world's a circle. It's, a, it's round. And there's so many things like that in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the water cycles, the Old Testament has the water cycles in them. Well, nobody discovered that until years and years later. And so, so here in this passage, I'll say this, God knew these kind of questions would be asked. They were asked back then in the first century, and there's people who will ask now. So if you say, the Lord is coming back, then people are going to say, oh, yeah, people have been saying that forever. Since Jesus came, they've been saying that. Well, look at 2 Peter 2, 3 to 9. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now just put, just put this in your notes somewhere because you'll need to remember this. God talks about destroying the world. He would never destroy the world by water again. The Bible talks about the world being destroyed by fire. But it doesn't mean the world ceases to exist. God will redeem what was broken. He, he will not just replace it. Planet earth will not be thrown away and a new earth created. Planet earth will be redeemed. It'll be repaired. So notice here, he destroyed the world. Did he destroy the world? No, he destroyed all the people on it, except for Noah and his family. And so the same thing happens when he destroys by fire. Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, keeping, uh, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. That's what we're talking about in these, these chapters in Revelation. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Again, he could have said one day is like a billion years because time has no meaning to God. Verse nine, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God seems to be eternally patient. The Apostle Paul thought he'd be raptured. And here we are, in, you know, almost 2,000 years later, wondering if we'll be. We may, we may not be. God is seemingly eternally patient. Why is he patient? Because he wants more people to say yes to him. He's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But don't mistake his patience for his lack of justice, because his justice is sure. And so that's what we're seeing is God's infinite justice being poured out now and sin being uh, condemned and, and sinners uh, being exterminated. Did you catch that word in that passage earlier? Exterminated from the world. 
Now here's the third thing in your closing, closing observations. God's wrath is the evidence of his holy love for all that is right and his holy hatred of all that is evil. God's wrath is, his, is the evidence of his holy love for all that is right and his holy hatred for all that is evil. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. God's wrath is not when, when God finally loses it or he can't take anymore. I bet some of us parents can say, we've been there and done that, right? You know, I've, I've had it, you know, kind of deal. God's wrath is driven by his holy love for what is right and therefore his holy hatred of what is evil. God hates sin because God loves sinners and sin hurts sinners. God didn't just make, get, get in heaven and say, okay, let's make up a lot of really fun stuff and make it wrong to do. So that way they can't have fun. No. God loves us. Christ died for us. It says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God one day is going to give us heaven. Somebody's described it as the end of desire. In other words, you'll never have desire again because everything you'd ever desire, you'll have. That's what God is going to give us. So why would, he, why would he not give us that here? Well, he does. But see, God knows what will, what will help us and what will hurt us. In, the, in Romans 8, it talks about uh, we do not know how to pray as we should, so the Spirit intercedes for us. We don't know how to pray as we should because we don't know what we want. And probably everybody in this room has got something they wanted and decided after they got it, they didn't want it. And a lot of people, it's a marriage. And so, so we don't know what we want. And a lot of the things we want would hurt us. But we're not smart enough to figure that out. But God is. And so anything that God says is wrong comes out of a loving, omniscient heart. And he knows what will hurt us. And he hates, he, doesn't, he hates sin because it hurts people he loves. He's patient because he doesn't desire that any should perish. His wrath is held back by his love by his patience, and by his plan of redemption. On the Day of Atonement, if you remember, the blood of the unblemished lamb held back God's judgment. On top of the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubim. Cherubim are judgment angels. And they've got their wings touching at the top. They're looking down on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark. And they see the blood, and when they see the blood, they don't bring the judgment. In the Passover in Egypt, they, remember they got the unblemished blood of a lamb and they put it on the doorposts. And when the death angel saw the blood, he passed over and did not take the life of the firstborn in those homes. So the, his blood holds back the wrath. At the cross, Jesus suffered his father's wrath so we could be forgiven, be declared righteous, even though we're still imperfect, and made righteous. Because God doesn't just declare us righteous, he changes us. His spirit's in us, and we start to become less like we were and more like he is. One day, though, after at least 2,000 years of chances for people to say yes to God, the time is going to be up. And God's going to say, now. And boom, just like that, we're into that world. Again, the rapture, there's nothing has to take place for the rapture. All these signs that have to be fulfilled are about the second coming, which takes place at the end of the tribulation. Now, here's the fourth closing observation. 
Because we're talking about God's wrath being poured out on, on the earth and on sinners. God's wrath for our sin was poured out on Jesus. It was poured out on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God put our sin on the sinless Jesus so we could be declared righteous and have his righteousness. If uh, probably all of you have seen The Passion of the Christ, a fabulous movie, the, the, just a superb uh, depiction of the physical agony that Jesus was put through by, you know, by, the, by the Jews at the hands of the Romans. But that's not the real story. Jesus didn't owe the Jews. Our, our sin debt was not owed the Jews. Had nothing to do with them. Our sin debt was not owed the Romans. They weren't the ones who were going to punish Jesus and cover our sin. Who was going to punish Jesus? The Father. That's who our sin debt was against. The Father's the one who had wrath against sin. He's the one that had to be satisfied. And so how's it happen? God does the unthinkable, sends his own son into the world and pours his wrath out on that son, this sinless son, so he can forgive all of us sinners. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he can bring us to God. Galatians 1.4 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age, get us out of the curse, according to the will of God, uh, of our God and Father. That's what God wants is get us out of this curse. He never meant it for us. He meant it for Eden for us. He meant heaven for us. In your outline, I put Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word for there is the Greek word huper, which means in the place of. In the place of. It's the same word up in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that's translated on our behalf. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin in our place. He took it on himself. Then verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. There's another place, I can't remember if it's in, in Romans 5 or 3, where it says God did what he did so that he might be just, sin got paid for, and he might be the justifier. He paid the price himself. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Join us next time as we continue the Revelation series with Pastor Rocky moving on to chapter 7 to talk about Jews and martyrs and what important truths we can learn from the next chapter of Revelation. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Corrington Cast, the official podcast of Corrington Church. If you have any questions at all, visit us online at CorringtonChurch.com or drop us a message or comment on social media. We're at Corrington Church. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we pray God's richest blessings on your life. Give us a rating, hit subscribe, and have a fantastic day.